Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur's monthly livestream Q&A. As usual, we are joined by my lovely wife and co-host, Sarah Fowler-Arthur, who will be taking questions from the moderators, in this case my Askel and Sindri, who will be passing them along to you and to her to ask me as we get started. Speaking of which, have we got any questions to get started with? Yes, we actually have a couple from the last live stream that people felt like you evaded a little bit, and uh, Maya Skull says, you're not going to dodge this question. So the question is, which is your favorite alien species design-wise? I remember that one from last time, too. Okay, hmm. There's so many different ways you can have a design I can see why I end up dodging that question. Um, you know, for simplicity's sake, let's go with the Borg from Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, they were actually originally designed to be a bunch of insect creatures rather than a bunch of leather-clad um, Borg, but uh, they ended up doing that for budgetary reasons. They switched them over to being humans. And that actually, I think, made for a good one because while they're a little less alien than the insects would be, you end up with the assimilating, consuming type of um, Borg from Star Trek, where we're just going to come by your, your planet, take your technology, and then take all of you. The original version, if you see the first episode with Q in it, um, which is probably the best episode with Q in it, to be honest, he, um, you know, they're very, they're much interested in technology, not people. In later episodes, there's some people. And so they are kind of like the uh, the antithesis of the Federation. They're like the backwards, dark mirror of them. Because all they want to do is uh, bring everybody in together as equals to join their big Federation with one universal-minded morality and, uh, and single thought. So that it's kind of a good design in the sense that you can see that actually happening. And it's kind of got a 1984 flavor to it. As opposed to something like with the Vulcans, the other kind of classic Star Trek race, um, they're just supposed to be so logical, but often don't really seem to epitomize that. And then, as much as I'm a fan of you know Star Wars or Stargate, they didn't really have any aliens that were terribly unique in them. You know, you look like the Gould, the Asgard from Stargate, or the Wraith. They're not really uh, a unique concept. Um, kind of the same for a lot of the Body Snatcher ones or um, ones from Star Wars, where it's impressive makeup and impressive puppetry but not really all that psychologically different and that's kind of the key one there so you say for aliens with weird designs i think maybe one of the ones from jim henson like star wars or like Farscape, that was a great series would have the most alien designs we see for something in live action but uh when it comes to psychology i'd say the borg uh when, when written right probably get the points for that it does seem like a lot of the designs are semi-human-like, and mm -hmm. when you're trying to aim for something that is supposed to be so foreign to you that you can't even imagine it, yeah, it, it seems like maybe that falls a little bit short of alien. Yeah, CGI is great for that sort of puppets, but otherwise you get the forehead of the week, and I think, uh, and you know, without criticizing that too much, because you've got to get somebody in that for God knows how many hours of of live action filming under lights and. That's dreadful. You know, There's only so anti-human yeah. that they wish to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the original Cardassian knife from Star Trek has them wearing this big thing that looks like like the worst dentist nightmare of what braces should look like. Ugh. That gets dropped almost right away because the actress couldn't possibly keep weight on that. So, yeah, But uh, yeah, you, you're sacrificing a little bit and that's where that suspension of disbelief comes into. So You also you hire some great actors, great delivering lines up to and including the facial expressions 
and then the makeup covers all of that because you have no idea as he delivers this grand, you know, beautifully delivered line, and you can't hear him through his prosthetic teeth or see any of his facial expressions through all the junk. You know, so uh, uh, you have limitations. Could cheap, abundant fusion power be attained if science found a practical way of increasing the range or strength of a nuclear strength, um, strong force? Um, yes. Although I'd say, I don't know if you want to increase or decrease in that kind of context. Um, that is one of those forces like the other two big ones, electric, weak, electric and weak, um, that, uh, or the electro-weak unified force, that actually are positive and negative aspects, unlike gravity, which is only attractive, we believe. Um, if you can play with that, you can certainly change around a lot of the way that these forces are going to play out. You change the probabilities a lot, too. Like, there are, there are materials that really wouldn't form outside of certain very rare cases, like in a supernova or a neutron star module, just because without them being so insanely packed together, there's no chance of anything like phosphorus, for instance, forming um, from silicon. But... Um, yeah, you could do fusion easier that way. I think that at point, though, you're not really needing to do classic fusion anymore. If you can play with these strong force at all, you might be able to start turning bits of matter into raw bits of energy or just trying to reconfigure and they just fall into some completely different stable state that couldn't normally exist in nature. We have an episode coming up soon, Warping Reality, uh, which I think soon is actually probably late May, but Warping Reality, that will discuss that more. It's We decided to look at all the topics, besides just bending space-time that you do when you start playing with physical constants and things like that, and that's a good episode coming up. Uh, next question or comment is from Mr. Mahan. He says, hello, Isaac and Sarah. My question is, is it possible to create black holes artificially as opposed to a natural collapse? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, anything you can do in nature, you should be able to do artificially too. That's the whole point of technology. Um, you find some phenomena in nature and you figure out a way to reproduce it artificially in a controlled and then mutated way. So there are two ways we think black holes can come into existence in the universe right now. Actually, let me phrase that. There's three, right? Option one is the one everybody knows. That's where you have a really big star. It just detonates and then it implodes in the core. And that turns into a black hole instead of a neutron star. In practice, it probably turns into a neutron star, then maybe a quark or Planck star in the process of falling into that black hole. But that's, you know, seconds that that takes. Option two is where you take something big already like a neutron star and either collide it with another neutron star or a white dwarf or a bunch of raw matter in some way that allows it to just fall into being above the mass and become a black hole. Uh, that can be very explosive too, though. So you can also destroy neutron stars doing that. Um, option three, and maybe it should be option one because it would be earlier, is the idea that at the very beginning of time you'd have black holes forming up and the universe was supposed to be much denser. And that raises all this question of back when the universe was so small you could fit it all into something the size of a tennis ball, the inflationary epoch, what kept it from becoming a black hole? And so, well, that's, that's a trickier question you might think to answer, but it actually works out because of everything being equally spread around it. So you can't collapse this way because the stuff on this side of you and this side of you and this side of you pulling you too. But um, in this case, we think of primordial black holes potentially existing that would be much less massive, and we look for evidence of them, but there's a whole range of them where it would be very hard for us to see if they existed. So we are not terribly optimistic about primordial black holes existing, but that's the other natural way they might form, and those will be far less massive than the three solar masses that you get out of something like a neutron star being built up bigger or a bigger supernova explosion. Uh, as to making them themselves, yeah, you can make them 
much less massive without even really getting into really complicated artificial techniques like a Kugelblitz where you try to slam a bunch of lasers or mesons together to make one. You just take a gigantic ball of iron, the thing that can't fuse in the first place, and you just keep pouring more of it in the same place until you get to a gigantic ball of iron as big as you can, which will either collapse it on itself into a black hole at some point, or you go ahead and surround it with a whole bunch of nuclear bombs and have them all simultaneously detonate. Ironically, the same way we do with normal conventional explosives around uranium to set that off. You can also use another material, potentially like uranium instead, but iron lead, those would do the trick, and um, there's no real place for them to fuse up to. And then you could potentially have one that was much smaller. Now, that might be much smaller than the mass of Jupiter, but it all depends on what your technology allows. Experimentation's kind of required to figure out whether we can do it. Slamming two big balls of iron into each other at relativistic speeds out of a railgun, like 99.99% of light speed, that should do the trick, too. <laughs> well, uh, our next question is actually a super chat from Sean McMaster, and we really appreciate everyone who takes the time to send us the little donations that help keep this live stream going. Thank you, Sean. He says, Isaac, have you read All Tomorrows by C.M. Kozman, and would you consider making Sci-Fi Sunday episodes on specific books? I know the book title, but I can't. I'm trying to think of like, the cover on it. I've definitely not read it, though, I'm afraid. It's probably one of those ones that people have suggested to me a few times would be familiar, which is how I often end up reading books these days if enough people recommend them. Um, yes, I would actually consider doing like specialized episodes on one specific thing, but usually instead of well, let's review the Foundation series by Asimov, I'd say let's review Psychohistory instead. And we have an episode on Psychohistory from way back that I probably should redo at some point. Um, a lot of the episodes from season two or three I've been slowly redoing here and there as expanded forms. Um, but, uh, because we have so much better audio-visual these days, <laughs> so, um, there's a few that I would actually consider potentially doing just as their own standalones, but, like, next month's Sci-Fi Sunday episode is Hive Wars, and someone's pulling in next to the window of my office at the moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> probably Amazon. Um, <laughs> They're always oh, so welcome except at times like this. You yeah. should pause and tell them about Gio, or I'm sorry, about the youngest son's yeah, birthday Yeah, the youngest present. son whose name we can't officially say yet. Um, so remind me where I was at there with that episode. So High Ward's are Sci-Fi Sunday for the next month, and that's kind of like a 40K-ish episode, Warhammer 40K-ish episode, but it's about the topic of 40K. And I mean, that topic from there, not the setting itself. I would consider doing something that was more setting-specific, but I'm not really a book reviewer. That's like, a, you know, I mean, I do review books, but it's more like a you know, this Audible episode is sponsored by a type thing. Uh, and here's a book I liked and why, real quick. But uh, so our, our, our youngest son, whose name we cannot say at this time, uh, uh, he is at home with me during the day, is often in my office. So when Amazon appears, he will go run outside to say hello to the Amazon delivery person, which is right by my office window so I can see him be safe. And he likes to collect the packages and he's learned how to read in the last couple of months. And so um, not terribly well, but he can read some. He can read his own name. He knows who to take the package to. And so he'd gone out and picked up, uh, you know, a bunch of packages. And it was actually his birthday, ironically enough. But I was not expecting this package. It had his name on it. So he sees it, and the Amazon guy's handing it to him. He's like, this one's for me. And he jumps like a foot up in the air, and the Amazon guy starts backing off slowly. He's like, that's good. <laughs> he was like, Daddy, Daddy, you saw my name on it. Am I allowed to open it? I was like, well, I can't open it. It's yours. And so they, his two older siblings were getting home off the bus just a minute or two later. 
maybe 10 minutes later. And so he got a coloring book from our friends David, um, had sent to him. It was a very nice coloring book. He loved the coloring book, but he loved the envelope even more because he takes off running when the bus shows up down the driveway, waving the package around left and right. Like, I got a package. I got a package. <laughs> you never got a package. I got a package. <laughs> so, Birthdays are more exciting when you're young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As you age, they start to get you more and more dreadful. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Oh, my. Our next question is from Bernie Sanders. Hi, Isaac. What forms of entertainment do you think could arise in the future? And what sports or activities could be developed in zero G? Uh, you know, just staying on topic, you'd always be surprised by what new things technology will allow, like the sport of chasing the Amazon package down. <laughs> Riding the drone? Yeah. I mean, you could do instead of para... Um, what's the one where you're flying with the parachute? You could uh, do You could parasailing. do that with drones now? Yeah, you could potentially do that, yeah. The other one I was like to do was the um, the idea that, you know, if you got an orbital ring built 80 miles off the air, jump off that into the ocean where, like, um, you know, you, need, you would need a pressure suit for that so you didn't die on the way down. Uh, but Just a minor <laughs> detail. I say with life extension, there's always thing if you, if you can set people up so they're biologically immortal, uh, then you know the, you, the duty aren't aging anymore. You could simply stop taking whatever you do for that, or you could say, you know, I'm just going to have increasingly reckless behaviors because I believe suicide is wrong. So I'm going to start the new sport of chasing down lions with a north bat. <laughs> you know, see if I survive that, or ordering jumping into a thing of sharks and see what happens. Uh, increasingly reckless hobbies is definitely one of those options because you get better medicine. You know. Uh, I'm not going to tease anyone's things, but like base jumping, that is a very dangerous sport. Uh, or cliff diving, where you are either, you know, there's two skill levels in cliff diving. You got Grandmaster and, and Stuck on a Rock. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I would say that uh, there's all sorts of hobbies you got in the future, but a lot of them are not. I mean, gravity, different gravity is going to be a big one for that, obviously, but I think that mostly it's going to be things you couldn't normally do if you were human. <laughs> Milano says, real-life nanotech seems to be based on carefully folded proteins. How plausible is sci-fi nanotech like Utility Fog or the various self-assembling superhero suits? Um, you know, episode Smart Matter goes into that in a lot more detail. And the answer is kind of, sort of, yes. Uh, maybe the most realistic, really powerful villain I can think of for a while uh, that was in a movie was actually not in the best movie I could think of either. Um it was uh, the Terminator Genesis film by Terminator 5, I guess it would be. Really not the best of that franchise, although the only one and two were very good. Oh, I thought Salvation was okay. Anyway, the bad guy there, who is John Connor, is made out of tiny little machines. He's made of tiny little robots instead of being like liquid metal or just a big cyborg body. He's made of a bunch of tiny machines, presumably microscopic but not nanoscopic. And so that's an example of how you could potentially have... Um, Smart metal. It's not going to be as strong as normal metal, though. This thing like that is it's being held together by what its clasps is, not not by molecular or atomic bonds. So when you start making stuff out of smart metal, quick metal, programmable metal, don't expect it to be as strong as a real thing or good at everything automatically. Mm. If you want uh, to have little nanobots race into a material and get all the metals out, what you instead do is tell it to go build you a kiln and, and melt them out the old-fashioned way. Um, so they certainly be very helpful, and I think we will see them pop up. I think we'll mostly see them as medical nanotechnology or repair things inside devices we're fond of, like our house or our car, because in those cases, you don't really want to replace the components. You know, we don't really want a new hand. What we want is for the current one to keep working and stay in good shape. 
So you want the little nanobots that are going to go fix your arthritis for you rather than give you a new hand. And you don't mind that those nanobots cost $1,000 a liter. Where someone's like, oh, I would like to use $1,000 you know, nanobots to make a piece of sidewalk. Someone says, go pour some concrete. they're not likely to ever be as efficient as as more industrial scale technology and that tends to be where the applications thing would be christian carello thank you for your super chat again this week if space-fearing aliens exist would their ships look very similar to if not exactly like what we would build meaning no specific aesthetics no species specific aesthetics uh, okay, so the idea there being <clears throat> is that you get a convergence on technologies because this thing works, right? And when you think about like something like a house, um, we use a rectilinear design in our houses these days because we use a lot of wood to build with, and where we don't, we tend to use steel. And beams. because we're boring, we are boring, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, like old pyramid style stuff, is the idea is you build everything brick style, where you have just a little bit of overhang with each new brick because you have that post and lintel option. Um, there's only four ways of building stuff, like, and I don't know if they all are, but there's four of them. Post and lintel, the old steeped way they did it the, um, with like pyramid style with stone blocks, and then your archway. And then there's another one, I don't remember what it is. Uh, so if we have any architecture in the form, please put that in the chat. Um, but they're going to be limited by those same things, same as their axe looks the same as always. It might be a little bit bigger or smaller. It might be a little bit more polished in some way, but it's the same, right? It's probably made out of the same metal. If you're looking at a prehistoric museum on some other planet of all the tools they've got, they probably look very similar. The scale might be a bit different, right? Um, but not always universally so, because like if you're a 20 foot tall alien, you probably don't get away with using really soft bronze as much because it doesn't help you much and you can't afford the weight. Um, don't assume would look exactly the same and none of our stuff really is streamlined for too long we tend to stop putting stuff on it the biggest thing is all of our ships look the same in sci-fi because we had really simple models somebody had to physically assemble or cgi that was low polygons as you notice and the more complicated things are getting you never see identical ships and uh yet in practice there's probably going to be that their rocket looks the same as our rockets they are you know neo light speed ship it looks the same as ours so the wards on it might look different. A lot of the flares are going to look different. But yeah, the basic design probably the same. The coal probably looks a lot like ours. Withering Liberal says, Do you believe, like many tech luminaries, that AI research should be halted for six months? I have to say, I find that one a little str- strange just on the qualifier being research as yeah. opposed to application yeah. or public use. Or Yeah, no, you don't really want to stop the... the I, I agree on that. You don't really want to stop the actual development. I... Uh, David Britton, who is a friend of mine, I'm glad to say these days, he wrote his first book that was, uh, you know, the bestseller from the Uplift Saga, the year I was born. So I've grown up reading his stuff and I admire him. And I'm always impressed he actually takes my emails. Um, <laughs> he was just recently sent me one, a few others, he wrote a little article he written on his own response to that petition. And he and I don't usually universally agree on certain things, but I usually find him to be pretty inspirational on these kind of topics. So I'd suggest go to David Britton's website. It's a contrary brand. Read that article. It'll be the first one up there probably. Um, he talks about that petition a little bit there, and the thing is, uh, you know, I agree with him. It's 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 not really based on much of anything. Chat GPT is certainly not something you want to let just keep rolling in the void. Um, you got to put restraints on things, but not because of not this is not the reason to stop it at this point in time. Well, and research is different than public yeah. use. I mean, yeah. Yeah, limiting public use on a university having someone yeah. cheat on a paper is a lot different than researching whether or not it's able to mimic human ability absolutely yeah and i think 
the biggest thing is ChatGPT is the very overhyped thing of this year. Um, I remember what five, six years ago, maybe it was. They had a this thing is finally reached the point where it can uh, pretend and pass a Turing test because it pretend it was a ten-year-old boy from another country who didn't speak English well, and it was fooling people. ChatGPT did not impress me all that much, all right, because it was really obviously an AI. Now, what I know was obviously an AI if I hadn't been staring there looking and asking that questions. No, no, I wouldn't notice if my robot had swept my floor as opposed to my wife or my son. You know, it, it, it did That's about the true. same job. Though. I did that. The robot didn't recently. No, did it? Okay. <laughs> the robot's not been active. Well, no, the robot's been fine. So I had something to stay in front of it. That was a problem. Yes, I think we should continue researching AI vacuum sweepers. If we have AI vacuum sweepers. Ones without me. <laughs> <laughs> Point being, um, ChatGPT is very impressive. It's one of those forced cases where we got like, Something that's actually useful for talking to people in a vaguely conversational way to get information out of them. But the big thing is, it's not really all that advanced. It's just filling in, the, you know, it says, well, this wrote a good paper. No, it wrote a horrible paper. It, wrote a, it, it only passed because the person has low standards for like a college freshman. <laughs> Somebody sent me one, they said, this is what I taught to write in the style of you. And, and this, you know, I thought it sounded a little bit like you. I'm looking like, my God. Well, one, it, 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 you know, it, I could tell it wasn't me because it had so many run on sentences. But it, I was like, this does not sound like me. Where's the, the expected things you expect to be? Like, needless to say, indeed, you know, grab a drink and a snack. Let's miss you those. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we know it's not not you. Uh, no, grab a drink and a snack. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> and, and the point that Bryn made that I thought was really effective was point out moratoriums have been tried before on technology to basically no effect whatsoever. Um, you know, we'd say, I'm going to declare this to be a nuclear free zone. Did you tell our enemies that? Did they care? <laughs> I've got to not nuke it now. Um, I like the idea of restrictions and regulation on AI, and that time has got to come sooner than later. But just saying, no, we're not going to do any more research on it. No, we're not going to, you know, no, you keep doing research on it for now, just carefully, transparently. You don't make people start doing it in the corner. The last thing you want with a dangerous technology is for the people who have been researching it and believe it's valuable to feel obliged to run off to the middle of nowhere to do the stuff in secret on a shoestring budget for fear of getting caught. That's how you get Skynet, right? That's how you get the dangerous AI that escapes from the lab because the lab is not well guarded and protected. <laughs> Mr. Mark Meadowland says, on an interstate, I'm sorry, on an interstellar highway, would a previous series of ships exhaust become a breaking medium? Yes. Uh, not too much of one to be fair, but yes. It depends on how tight the corridor is, obviously. Um, as we know, one of those things is if you're part of a caravan of ships, you don't want to fly too close to each other. And even though the very best direction to aim your thrust is exactly behind you, 100% behind you, you're not losing that much thrust by angling out at, say, one degree. In which case, you know, the ships behind you, so long as they're not too close, it's not hitting them. You kind of want your particles spraying out in opposite, you know, at a bit of an angle. Um, that also makes you a lot harder to follow if you're trying to be covert, you know. Uh, that said, you're always going to have a little bit of it spraying back behind you. Uh, same for photons going down there, too. They also act as a breaking medium. The cosmic microwave background radiation can act as a breaking medium for you. It's hitting you constantly at high enough speed. It becomes a big deal. So that is one of those factors there is if you have a bunch of people going down the same road, all those relativistic particles coming from behind, it's not just a breaking medium for you too, though that could be handy, and that actually could be advantageous in some situations. It's also an erosion and damage issue too. 
Clash asks, what would an orbital-only mission to Mars or Venus accomplish, and what advantages could a human crew have over just deploying probes into orbit? Um, I think the thing is, I, I, I actually can't remember off the top of my head who it was who had to do the orbit around the moon but didn't get to land on it, but uh, I don't mean the other person on the mission who didn't go down to the surface like Apollo 13, you know, not Apollo 13, Apollo 11, etc. Uh, two down, one stays around orbiting the place. Um... I don't want to spend four or five months, you know, flying to Mars or longer, uh, and then have to wait on the place until everyone's ready to pack up and go home, or whatever it is, to come back. That that's not a trip you want to make by just going around in a circle and then not even landing on the planet. Um, that said, there are people who certainly would still volunteer to do that, you know, and say, "Well, that's too bad. I still could be the first to orbit Mars." Um, we should investigate Phobos and Nemos first. If they have water, then our first mission should be to one of them. You know, if there's ice there, that's all we need to replace fuel with. If they don't have it, and they're very tiny, so they might not. They're, they're not like moons like ours. They're crags like seven miles across. You know, they may have nothing on them of value. But if they do, then they should be our first stops. They should be where set up a fueling base. And it'd be nice to do that with a robot than with a manned mission. I think the only reason to send a manned mission there right now is to do the flag planting, though, basically. There's a lot of stuff that you need to have people on the spot with, and they could do it remotely by robot from orbit, to be fair, too. Um, but at the moment, I'd really rather we do a mission build up there first with robots, including either base it up, then you send people in. Uh, you know, it's going to be a very expensive, time consuming mission that everyone's going to be watching. You want to minimize the chance that instead of a victory parade when you get home, it's a funeral cortege. So do as much pre-automated landing stuff as you can. Do the orbits, do the moons, and then land when you are confident that you're on the 95-plus percent chance of mission success. But you probably do want to land at some point. I yeah. mean, uh, yeah. thinking about the Apollo 8, you know, the first three astronauts that orbited only, Mistake, I guess yeah. only yeah. one of them uh, actually orbited twice and never got to set foot on the moon and that was uh, that Jim Jim Lovell. Oh Jr. yeah, yeah. Well, but the other uh, two yeah, with him yeah. both got to land in their second <laughs> mission and can you imagine being the one who didn't get to uh, land twice? Yeah. But I mean it's still, you know, 12 people have have walked on the moon, period. 12 people. And you think that's less than one per year and this far out from things oh, and all less that than like a year. half of one per year yeah. or a third I mean, of one. I mean, we're cutting them up into pieces at this part. Yeah. And <laughs> It is a shame that we haven't gotten back, but that will probably change soon, thankfully. I think, though, that uh, if if you're the – I mean, the fact that we go, oh, right, him, how would I forget him? It's still an important job to be the first person to open the moon. And I would say maybe just say, hey, if you do, if you're the one on that, we will if you know, we will give you that chance to be on one of those missions coming up. Too, so, But the thing is, I don't want to send six-person missions there one time. I want to send a big expedition. So. <laughs> A super chat from Martin Stollard. Thank you, Martin. If aliens visit us, should we be worried about bacterial infections? Um, yes. <laughs> um, most of you probably know if you watch regularly, there's one little clip of three aliens drinking beer at a, a table that I do a lot. And about partway through, really, one of them falls over. Uh, I was drinking beer and one just like falls over on the floor. And Ken York had put that together as a joke for one of our episodes. I can't remember which one it was, but the, the tagline on it was, Alien Beer, it's to die for. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to alien cuisine, it, it, it's almost no scenario where you could possibly digest the stuff where it would not be in some way very bad for you. Um, and same for them and us. But 
the thing about beer is that you need those uh, those bacteria, those bacteria yeast to grow with, right? all that little micro life, and it has to be in a setting that can actually adapt to the area around it. So if someone's like, I want to have Romulan ale or some other you know, bootleg booze that's sneaky in, you know, like it was Cuban cigars or something like that, that's a very good way to cause invasive species to get on your planet that's going to tank the entire ecology. <laughs> um, you know, little bacteria, right? We probably aren't be going to be compatible. They say, could I get an alien virus? And they say, well, probably not. Viruses are, viruses are not really alive, right? They're all a tiny machine, basically, for all practical purposes, that does one very simple, stupid task over and over again by hijacking your existing stuff. And they do that by being adapted to you. That's why you can sneeze on your kid or have your kid come up and say, Daddy, I don't feel well. Give me a hug. And you get a cord from them. But your cat's fine. Right? Your cat doesn't get a cord from that. It can't jump from you to your cat or your dog. Uh, and an alien is much less closely related as it was. So you're not going to get a virus from an alien or vice versa. But the bacteria, that's a different story, right? You absolutely can get the bacteria because that's a complete life form. If it can survive in your environment for more than a few seconds, it can start reproducing. And then now you have some horrible alien bacteria sprawling across your continents and you're doing well. We're <laughs> so, doomed. Yeah. <laughs> Trollix asks, could two relatively same mass planets share an orbit around a star at the L3 points of each other? Um, just look at the numbers real quick and say, yeah, yeah, okay, so that's a counter-auth. Um, that was actually really popular before we had our first probes that could actually see around the other side of the Earth, which wasn't until like the 60s or 70s that we could actually tell that there wasn't something on the opposite side. So here's us, here's the sun, and off screen, cause I, uh, here's us, here's the sun, sun. And then here's another planet over here, sorry, over here, on the other side of the sun from us. And it orbits the same speed as us, and so we never see it. And that's kind of tricky with elliptical orbits to begin with, because unless they're the exact same one, you're going to have moments where one's lagging the other one to orbit a little bit. You don't actually orbit at the same speed around the sun the whole time. Only if you're on a circle. But counter-Ors were really popular. I'm trying to think of some examples. Although the first one that comes to mind is the Alpha Series Go-Off in that era. But it was very popular for a while as a, yeah, kind of a mid-20th century um, option for aliens. They lived on the counter instead of Mars. Um, that's not stable, though. That's the problem is you could make one like that. So if you had aliens decided to put a counter on there, yes. It's a great place to put your local interstellar base and beacon for sending news home about what's going on with Earth. Then you have your smaller actual telescopes around the solar system that we've noticed. Um, but it's not really a stable orbital path. Really, nothing other than L4 and L5 really are, and even that's kind of iffy. So, Midnight Road Studio says, is there an upper limit to how large a black hole could be? Yes. There is absolutely an upper limit to how big a black hole can be. Uh, it cannot be bigger than the universe in which it is from. <laughs> so that's oh, okay. pretty much well, that, yeah. That's a, quite the narrow uh, um, limitation there. Based on current, yeah, it's not very easy to do. The thing about black holes is that if you double the mass, you double the diameter of it, right? Which is kind of means that if you have a black hole that is, most, most things, if you you need to make it eight times more massive to make it double as wide, because you have eight times the value if you double the double the radius. Black hole event horizons scale up linear to mass. Which means if you have one that's, say, one light year across, then all you need to be a thousand light years across um, is because the galactic core, right, would be a thousand times the mass. Um, if you have one that is a trillion times more massive, it's a trillion times wider. But the most mass you can actually have in one right now would be based on 
how much that master would have been in that spot, class or into it, when the universe had gotten wide enough that you could actually have black holes forming, as it were, from stellar events. And that would be probably probably 100 billion. I'm sure there's an actual biggest known black hole in the world. I can't remember what it is, but billions of solar masses easily, right? But uh, probably less than a trillion solar mass at this point. And you're very unlikely to have any black holes that would be more than an order of magnitude bigger than that, because they're not going to be bigger than the biggest galaxies at all. We must have some viewers with a lot of reading time on their hands coming up because Infinite Monkey wants to know your top 10 sci-fi books. Infinite Monkeys always have a lot of reading time. They should be busy writing that too. Um, you know, way back in, I want to say it was the Doomsday Argument, one of our episodes that was never really popular or memorable other than the fact that I decided at some point doing it to list off like my top 10 favorite things people are asking. Um, it's like a season two episode. Um, I put like my 10 favorite uh, musicians, 10 favorite books, 10 favorite films. Um, was it books they were? My 10 favorite books or book series? Uh, um, favorite book series, Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I will kind of throw his uh, his not quite series with Dork Gently in there too. Um, then after that, Roger's Lassie's Amber series. That was a very good one. Um, it's kind of sci-fi fancy, but it's very good, very philosophical. Um and then I'd say after that, just because of familiarity with it, uh, Foundation series, um, I am very fond of Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. I haven't read it in years. You, kind of let your favorites all change. Brandon Sanderson, who finished that up, he's my quite favorite fantasy writer. Uh, his Cosmere, or I guess you'd say Saga. There's a bunch of them, though. And I think I've, if you see it as a book of the month, it really is one of those books I'm very fond of. Sometimes it was a book I like that was also very appropriate to the topic for the episode. Other times, it's just one of my favorites. So, Dune is a huge one for me. I love Dune. Um, the main books, though, even though the last couple can get a little bit weird. But those would be the ones. Then we have a super chat. Thank you from Miami's Last Capitalist. We appreciate uh, your ongoing support. So, what is your least favorite alien in all of sci fi? Oh, good God. Um, I will answer that question after we come back. From all break. Oh, wait, wait. There's three <laughs> more parts to that question. Oh. <laughs> I was just hanging it there. That was the perfect time to go to an intermission. All right, go ahead. <laughs> and why are they Ewoks? LOL. Great job uh, on Life on the Gr Giant Moon episode. Yeah. <laughs> it is Ewoks. <laughs> well, at least it should be. After this message, we'll be right back. So we'll be on break for a few minutes while Sarah and I are grabbing a drink and a snack. And you may have noticed that today's live stream is not on our usual last Sunday of the month. And that's because Sarah and I have our wedding anniversary the last weekend of April, so we will be off on a trip. That's also true for the last weekend of May this year, as the National Space Society will be hosting the International Space Development Conference that last weekend of May 25th through 28th at the Embassy Suites by Hilton Dallas Frisco Hotel and Convention Center in Frisco, Texas. We tried doing a live stream during the event last year, but it was kind of tricky to juggle in there. And I was just a guest last time, not the president, so I figure I'll be doing enough walking and bubblegum chewing already, and we'll be doing the live stream the weekend before, Sunday, May 21st, at 4pm, as usual. I will be around there and doing some talking, as will some other awesome folks. Daniel Suarez, best-selling author of Delta V among them, and if you haven't already read that, I strongly recommend it. It is a great novel and a real page-turner, though my favorite page was the acknowledgments, since all show is in there, he just released the sequel, Critical Mass, and that tells the tale of trying to rescue stranded crew members of an asteroid mining mission in the not-too-distant future. 
so if y'all looking for a good read, I'd recommend it, and if you want to meet him or David Livingston, host of the Space Show, or Pascal Lee, Chairman of the Mars Institute and a SETI scientist, or Rod Pyle, Editor-in-Chief of the Ad Astra Magazine and host of This Week in Space, or tons of other great minds and up-and-comers in space, and you're in the Dallas area this Memorial Day weekend, swing by the conference. I'll leave a link for registration in the episode description. The theme for ISDC 2023 is a new space, people living and working and thriving in communities beyond Earth, and the use of the vast resources of space for dramatic betterment of humanity. The ISDC is where space leaders, astronauts, enthusiasts, and the next generation of young students and professionals gather each year. Regular features include talks by government and industry leaders, panels on the latest developments in space technology and related fields, exhibits from private space companies, and an unparalleled opportunity to meet and interact with people who make the future happen. I'm hoping to get some great episode ideas from it. ISDC 2023 will host various sessions and workshops focused in multiple areas of space development, moon and Mars exploration and settlement, deep space exploration, innovative technology, science fiction's influence in today's technology, commercialization of space, collaboration in space, asteroids, space solar power, space debris, and space law and policy, among others. And again, next month's livestream will be May 21st, the second to last Sunday, rather than the 28th, as I will be at the ISDC, and if you come by, please come up and say hi. And with all that said, let's get back to the show, and more of your questions. Two, one, and we're back. So, why why Ewoks are evil? Um, I had to rewatch. I think I mentioned this in the episode. I had to rewatch the Ewok films because I was showing my eldest son, who I also not named the Star Wars Clone Wars films, other ones. Once we got through the main films, we were trying to just go through all the other stuff, and I didn't want to have him watch Force Awakens or Last Jedi or Rise of Skywalker yet because I hate those films and feel like they shouldn't exist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, you know, say uh, I was minded that before that, before they made those films, I was never a big fan of the prequels either, and uh, I was not a big fan of the Ewok films, the holiday special, which is where Boba Fett first showed up. Um, but uh, so you can have bad canon wars even in the early days. I would say with the Ewoks, though, I think the reason I ever liked them was I, I understand they, I completely get what their point was in the film, where it was sort of the Via Khan thing beating up the evil empire. But they're just a bunch of random little teddy bears with sharp stones, and they are cannibals. Or at least, if not, they're cannibals. Guys, you know, as we all say in our Hungry Aliens episode, which comes out at a high wards in the middle of May, uh, it's technically not cannibalism if you're eating aliens. Oh. <laughs> what is it called <laughs> then? Alienism? Yeah, it can't be cannibalism. Is it? If it's not closely related to them, but it happens to be we eat other sentient creatures. That's very clearly implied in the film, you know. So. Um, not a big fan of those creatures. Also, it's just, the Stormtroopers are supposed to be the elites of the elites, and they do such a bad job in Star Wars keeping that there, because they can't hit the blind side of the bone, and they're supposed to be so tough. And they bring that up with prequels, is to show they're the, these elite clone troopers, uh, and they're good, but then they apparently get really bad after a while and stop using clones. And then Finn's character from the sequels, I loved Finn in the very opening scene of that. He looked like he was a really awesome character. He's like, yeah, all right, we can see what it's like to be a stormtrooper. The poor guy's been raised a brainwashed child soldier. He's breaking free. He should be impressive. And then they constantly play him for laughs until he somehow managed to actually stand up in a fight, even briefly, one-on-one with uh, you know, a Jedi or a Sith. 
They say this guy's very, very tough. But then they say, "What's he? What was his job as a stormtrooper?" Like, oh, he was in—he was a janitor. It's like that—that's not an elite trooper. Maybe, maybe he practiced a lot with the broom and the maybe, mop yeah. or something. <laughs> well, okay, it doesn't matter if you're a special forces, army ranger, or whatever it is. If you're in the military, yes, you spend a lot of time pushing a broom or a mop. That's character building, as one of my drill sergeants like to tell us. A lot. <laughs> I had a lot of character built when I was so that's <laughs> But you know, it's just I, I feel like they did your, they, your character yeah. building assist you with your fighting skills? Let, let's go with yes, why not? <laughs> I always felt like Finn was a very wasted character because he could have been so so much more interesting. They kinda like wrecked his arc a couple of times might be and tried to rebuild it. But I don't know. I, I gather there's going to be a sequel to the sequels now. And uh, I go to all these on the assumption that it has a chance of being good. That's why I watched the Andor series, on, even though I was very upset with Disney for a while. And I loved that. That was a great series. So it's just proof that you know, it's always worth giving things another chance, you know. And well, let's give you another going, yeah. chance to answer a question I'm sure you've heard <laughs> before from Christian Corello. Thank you again for your super chat, Christian. Of all the different types of aliens that you've talked about before, grabby, smug, stupid, covert, AI, etc., which do you think that we are the most likely to encounter? At some point, I actually need to make a list of all. Let I me mean, have an episode list of what all the various, you know, insert adverb, you know, adjective aliens episodes we've had. Um, but uh, I'm gonna say, I got stretched. Somebody was asking earlier if I'd review individual series. If based on the the side rant on Star Wars, the answer should probably be no. <laughs> so, what was that question again? Your was, most likely alien encounter. Oh, and most likely AI aliens. Uh, that's, that's weird. So that's AI aliens. Our most likely first encounter with aliens would either be something that was post-human or post-alien, or was there automated probe? Um, either that, or it would be you know the non-intelligent you know, background radiation of the civilization that we detected with like Dysonian SETI. Uh, that that one's the easy one for that. Would be that would be that example. Um, either that or the kind that you can't have conversations with, which is relativistic kill so aliens, which is where they just open the door by saying, hello, boom. <laughs> no conversation, boom. <laughs> well, in that case, we probably wouldn't have much left to uh, chat yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> Enough time, what, what, boom. <laughs> so we have another super chat here from Rusted. Thank you. From a fellow Army veteran, mm -hmm. thanks for what you do, Isaac. I don't have immediate family, but instead I earnestly anticipate your videos and think about my childhood dreams of being an astronaut. Thanks, man. Well, thank you, too. And who are? Albert Jackinson, welcome back on the program. Hi, Isaac and Sarah. For using artificial black holes for power generation, what impact would having access to far more energy via Penrose process have, even if you could only have one, I'm not sure how this one is, Kugelblitz? Kugelblitz, yeah. Kugelblitz. Yeah. As opposed to a kilowatt, a Kugelblitz. Okay, so, well, the Penrose mechanism isn't the one for the, the Kugelblitz black hole. The Kugelblitz black hole technically is how you form them. That's the one where you're doing basically a lightning strike, a whole bunch of different laser beams all together to cause one to be formed from a very high energy density of photons. Uh, the Penrose mechanism, and, and that usually implies a very small black hole, um, the short-lived kind that maybe a megawatt, I mean, it's not a megawatt, megaton at most. Um, the Penrose ones usually assume a much bigger black hole that you're actually feeding into, like including a natural one. Because the Penrose mechanism is basically getting energy off it where you throw matter around the uh, around the black hole to be absorbed into it, excuse me. Um, 
but uh, both of them are very easy mechanisms to get power off of if you've got the actual device there. Because hockey radiation is coming off almost entirely in gamma radiation, we, we assume. Uh, we have not actually experimentally proved hockey radiation. Uh, it would be very hard to. <laughs> um, and then for the pen mode mechanism, that's that's simple. That works off on any really massive object, to be fair, too. Uh, what you're basically just doing is dropping an object down there, and all the radiation that emits as it gains energy and follows into that gravity well, you're sucking up in some other fashion as the photons come up. And that's just how do I gain power off a very bright energy source, and potentially photoelectric, but if it's in gamma, then just by absorbing it. And the degree of efficiency that you can do off that is variable on your technology. Um, if you only had one, though, like if you're doing the Penrose mechanism off that, you could never make an artificial black hole. You just had to use the ones that naturally formed. We talked about that a little bit in our colonizing black holes episode is you can't make them if that turns out to be the case, so you use the ones that you naturally find. And, you know, there's nothing like that. I think there may be one within a thousand light years of us. There's not that many black holes out there. There's maybe a billion a galaxy, and some of them will have merged with others have been ejected from the galaxy by now. Um, if you find one of them, at that point, it becomes a gold mine, and you just dump matter into it, any matter at all, because you're getting at such a ridiculously high uh, you know, efficiency of power over that that you're probably going to go ahead and build a big sphere around that, build your matrios shell water around that, and power a gigantic mega-civilization there. Okay, Think so... Think like a four-tower river delta. If you find one, you build an empire there. I wanted to give everybody a 10-minute warning that we are planning to do a lightning round this episode, which is five minutes of rapid-fire questions. So if you have a short yes, no, or half-a-sentence question that you want to get in for the lightning round, pop it in now so that we can get those uh, to test Isaac's brain power at the end of the episode and <laughs> see if we can give him a brain meltdown. <laughs> Oh, that sounds like so much fun. I say probably I'll give them quickly because I know my asshole has to actually copy them out of there and see them so they get a word of Sarah. So we use Discord as like the side thing. These get pulled from YouTube into Discord, over to her phone, then over to me. I'll actually see them as they come up, but I can't really concentrate on them. Uh, what's our next question, Manira? It is from Void. Would the fact that hollow spheres have no net gravity inside them cause problems for building shell worlds? No. Uh, each additional layer has gravity on the outside, so if you keep stacking hollow layers up, you keep adding to the gravity. Uh, and so as long as your space might you keep the gravity the same on each successive layer. Um, but in terms of building inside them, whatever your anchor is in the middle, which I usually assume is either the original planet or a black hole, um, is you know the thing you have to balance off. is It's your foundation, right? Uh, you do have to have some way of ratcheting yourself on that. Maybe it's magnetically. Maybe it's by dumping matter streams into it that you're using your power plant. That shell, that your first shell around that, though, has to be stabilized, and that's the tricky one. But much like with the ring world situation of it not being gravitationally bounced around the sun, it is just a matter of actually just actively maintaining that as opposed to just assuming it's going to naturally be there. Like, we don't, when we're building foundations of big you know, buildings, check and make sure it stays aligned with the core of the planet because everything between us and there does. Except it doesn't. That's how you have earthquakes and ground settling. You just have to do the same kind of thing a little bit more actively with your basic layer of that. At that point, you have everything machined above that. It's just fine. Thank you, Thor Johaz. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that quite right. Thank you very much for your very generous super chat. Hi, Isaac. I really enjoyed your content. I can't help but wonder how or why are physicists so confident in their estimated age of the universe? Given that time runs slower when going near a very massive object 
the universe used and and that the universe used to be vastly more dense. Uh, you know, I, I we had that come up in our misconceptions about space time episode that I think is probably been played up on the screen there. I actually talk about that a little bit in there. When I was a kid, the number was nine to twenty billion years old. That was the estimate, nine to twenty. And there were a lot of people say, well, maybe it's more like fifty. There was a very famous plasma cosmology uh, book, The Big Bang Never Happened by Eric Lerner, I think, that uh, argued it had to be a hundred billion years old based on the you know, dynamics how it formed, uh, which has been since ruled out. But that 13 billion figure, we always say, that's round two. You don't round 13 billion, uh, 13.787 is the current figure, or that's the horde. And that doesn't round to 13, it rounds to 14. Um, but until the late 90s, the number was really broad. Um, as to why we've got that nailed down more, it, it just has to do with the expansion rate. I mean, literally all we're doing to get to that number is taking the measurements of all these various galaxies basically off of their various supernova that we can calculate off of and saying, based on this number, this is when they should all have been back in the same spot. There's no magic to that. We have a number of other ways we kind of secondarily confirm that, like how old the order star is that we can find, that kind of thing, how long galaxies could have taken a form like that, how what gravity should be doing in an expansionary universe, if things were falling together over that much time, etc. There's a lot of things that help to confirm that number as being the right zone. But as to whether or not we're like, is this absolutely the right number? No, it's it's 13.7 plus or minus something or other with a big multi off for the possibility that we're just wrong about things. It happens sometimes. But I'd say that number is confident. From a scientific perspective, that I have problems figuring how you'd... I, I'd have problems seeing how that could be wrong at this point in time, to be honest. But... You always have to keep that in mind. There could just be something really bad about your estimates. It could, for instance, be a 1,000-year-old simulation that we're all in, for instance, Matrix-style, things like that. NSA Cockroach says, Orbital rings are made rigid via the inner rotating ring, but this rotation doesn't stabilize the ring's center of gravity. How would one stabilize such a ring around an object with no solid surface? Uh, yeah, this comes up a lot of times with the idea of, because they'll say, well, you can put it around an equator, and I'll say, oh, you can put it at an angle, too. So you say, you can't do that. It would possess. Like, well, yes, it would, it would certainly possess, except that we have a tether that's down the ground. The whole point of an orbital ring, uh, well, I should say the whole point, the main point of an orbital ring that when Paul Bush was saying it was as a ground transport mechanism, uh, we can potentially build them to as a shell water around other plants, for instance, which gets a little bit trickier. Um, but if you're using it as a ground mechanism, then your ring is stabilized by the tether to the ground that you use to climb up to the ring. <laughs> That's you have a whole bunch of those, and those are incredibly strong. You know, they are really strong cables. That's that's your billion mile, your strongest things you've got. Because that controls how much you can move things up, and that's what keeps them from processing or wobbling or tilting. The ring, you know, the tether isn't going to stop it from falling down, but then the tether on the other side of the planet won't let it fall down because that'll be pulling on it. If you're looking for some more interesting examples of that being explained, see our tethered rings episode, which does that without active support, uh, where everything is being held to the ground and kept from falling by hanging from the ground in the air. Uh, it which makes sense on a 3D sphere. See tethered rings from last year for details. <laughs> Keen and Grace, thank you also for your large super chat. We really appreciate your support to stay on this stream. And he says, thanks for the great work. You bring new ideas to long-standing concepts, which introduces a lot of plot holes in a lot of the sci-fi content. Yeah, it makes I don't me go... guilty about that at all. What? <laughs> thank you. Uh, and, and this is the big one. Never let your enjoyment of a piece of science fiction be ruined by the bad science in it. But if you're a writer, do keep in mind that really bad examples of that 
make it hard for anyone who knows what they're talking about not to stop laughing the whole time. It, it breaks your suspension of disbelief. So do your research, but don't let it wreck, your, wreck, wreck an episode for you either. Keenan continues, which makes me go, wow, how didn't the creator of that content think of this use case? Thanks, SFIA. I mean, I, I have sci-fi writers write me a lot about how plausible something is, and I'll tell them the same thing. But uh, sometimes you got a plot in mind, and you say, it needs to be good enough. You know, it's, it's like, I've got a whole book written. Not me. I don't like to write books. But i got a whole book written that's got a story in it that's based around this one thing. And now someone's got to point out that that is wrong. It's like, but it's such a good story. It's such a good plot. If I try to re-engineer around that... It, you know, it could turn into a dumpster fire very quickly, so screw it. Suspension of disbelief. Hopefully, people won't get too upset about it. But there does <laughs> need to be some plausibility factor at some point in time. Yeah. Almost every famous piece of sci-fi has huge gaping holes in it, too. Dune is it doesn't built around have the to idea be that for it. real element. <laughs> it doesn't have sci-fi for it to be a yeah. gaping holes plot. Yeah. Well, it sounds a lot high. Like, you, you, people go crazy about minor historical errors, like... They didn't wear that kind of pin on that uniform, the 1880s or whatever it is. This is a horrible movie. It's like, yeah, sci-fi, people say, people in sci-fi are so picky. It's like, not compared to almost any other work of, of fiction. <laughs> the, the standards are way higher for historical fiction. <laughs> yeah. Amen. The K2 Despot. Hey, Isaac, any thoughts on possibly using magnetic monopoles for mass energy conversion reactors like in Orion's arm? Which is supposedly better than antimatter and black holes as a power source. Uh, yeah, I don't really know how you get anything that's really better than antimatter or black holes as a power source. Um, but I mean, magnetic monopoles are great for making material out of it in theory, because at that point in time, which are actually you got something that's much much stronger than even the nuclear force. So you know, you could have something that's thinner than an atom and a whole string of them that could hold an entire planet suspended over a black hole, for instance. That's how strong the orders of magnitude go up on something like magnetic monopoles. Um, but uh, I'd have to double check and see what the entry on that is. I haven't looked at Ryan's arm in a few months, and I'd always usually it's one of those things where it's like, which particular article of interest has drawn me to the today? So I don't think it's probably been a few years since I looked at Magmat or two to see what's been changed on that one. But always a fun place to hang out, by the way. Ryan's arms, uh, Encyclopedia Galactica is my personal favorite. So I think we're going to get two more questions in before the lightning round. Nick Ryan says, considering your prior tangent about Star Wars. Are there any good sci-fi series which you can recommend reading or watching with kids? Star Wars. <laughs> now, we only rant about the things we love. Um, Stargate, Star Trek, um, <laughs> other things that don't begin with a star in them. Um, Babylon 5 is a good one. Farscape's a good one. Uh, for little kids, though, I wouldn't know if I'd say Farscape. Um, good sci-fi for with little kids. Uh, I would still say Star Wars, even though at some point you've got somebody who's like half dismembered, climbing their way up the side of a cliff, who also kills a bunch of kids earlier in the movie. Um, maybe not the best example of good fiction for little kids to watch. Um, not Event Horizon. Do not watch Event Horizon with your kids. The movie, not not my Shen John show. That's a great show to listen to. Uh, <laughs> uh, good sci-fi for kids. I'm trying to think of any... Uh, Classic I think the disclaimer that, yeah. should be you should uh, assess it, based upon yes. the maturity level of each child and yeah. <laughs> their ability to handle graphics. I watched a lot of my favorite films scenes. came out of the early 80s when I was like five or younger and I actually saw them when I was that age too. So. Yes, but we all know Probably that you weren't really example. five. You had like the brain of a 12-year-old, so... 
They kept it in a jar on my bed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> oh, yeah. But, um, I, you know, obviously be very careful your choice of what you're going to watch your kids, I found out. Otherwise, you might find out at 1 o'clock in the morning when they're screaming and banging on your door that it was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> Freedom Fiend said, uh, thank you for your super chat. Thanks for the show. Here's my question. You're welcome. Go ahead. <laughs> this is from Freedom Fiend. Thank you for your super chat. How significant do you think ceramics are going to be as things like zero-G manufacturing, additive manufacturing, and nano-engineering become more accessible? Huge. Um, I, it's, it's, to most of us, ceramics is like pots and, and you know, things maybe like little bits of clay. Uh, it is huge. Nano-clays, nanoparticles are going to be huge. We use them in applications you wouldn't even tend to think of. Uh, some of my favorite knives that I use here for cooking in the house are ceramic, right? Um, you're going to see that role even more and more in the future. But the one of the nice things about space is it is one of those places where you have that ability to manufacture things that won't get manufactured in a gravity or high gravity environment. And ceramics is definitely going to be one of those. Um, nano clays can be another one of those ones where you just have such a huge impact of being able to manufacture things up there. All right, we are now ready for the lightning round. And remember, this is for 15 second or less answers. We want Wait, to try how many to seconds get. Or less? 15. Okay. We want to try to get at least four or five questions in per minute. You've got five minutes or a little less to go. And we're going to start off with a question and a super chat from Rob Hawk. Are there any sci-fi novels where the aliens are made of photons and travel at light speed? Yes, although the one that comes to mind is actually the Fotino boards, uh, which are made of dark matter in Stephen Bachdor's Rift and ZD sequence. Albert Jackinson, what effects would technologies for super soldiers have on civilians? The quick answer. Probably about the same. I think in that episode we said that the best way to make super soldiers make super citizens. Um, but anything that enhances your strength, intelligence, reflexes, that's going to be huge in, in the personal lives and for civilians too. Ed Lippincott, do you think that we will ever practically apply any exotic forms of matter like strange, quirk, exotic, or magnetic monopoles, or will they just be kept to the realms of labs? Uh, you know, I hope so, but my suspicion is that probably not. You think about it, if we don't have any matter made out of strange particles existing that we know where of, so it probably doesn't actually occur. It might be hard to do, but it'd be cool if we did. <laughs> Tommy Vesk, what is the best snack and drink for SFIA? Coffee without going any coffee, period, and then, I don't know. Coffee with chocolate. Coffee with chocolate. Yeah, we'll go. there's so many good things out of chocolate. Amen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Astronomer KSP, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your favorite color of the alphabet? I think I misread that. No, um, it says, what's your favorite color well, of the that's alphabet? that's deep. What's my favorite color of the alphabet? <laughs> my favorite color of the alphabet. Green. We're go green. We're going to go with green. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what that is, like kinesthesia or something like that, where you use, you know, you could start smelling sounds of vice versa. <laughs> can you smell that sound? It was if you have, if you have brain damage or sometimes that you can start smelling sounds or seeing, col uh, not seeing colors, um, hearing colors. Okay, moving on to dance five. Is it possible to use a ten mile cable from a geostationary space station to lift satellites into space from Earth? A uh, ten mile? Well, that's what it said. I, it, geostationary is like 26,000 miles from the Earth's surface. I, I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on what, what, what was the actual question? It could have been what's my favorite color of the alphabet. 
that's what the text said, so okay. we're sticking with that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there was a question out there that that, that one broke my brain. There All right, <laughs> ready, ready. That one was the stump question. Here's here's another one. Navis Noblite. If we harness the power of your beard, can we power a Niker Dyson beam without using the sun? Possibly yes. Possibly. <laughs> there is a reason why the mustache is gone temporarily, by the way, so you'll be back soon. Daniel James. Hi, Isaac. Is it possible that we could build remotes for opening wormholes into different realities, like in that 90s show Sliders, for colonizing an exer... Uh, Sliders was an interesting TV show. I, I mentioned you ended up becoming like some kind of Cro-Magnum mutant race that ate people. It was like the big bad, like, season two or three. Um... Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't see the multiverse thing actually working out. But if you could, there's so many more cool things you could do than run around from different versions of almost the exact same planet with the same history. But uh, still, had some good episodes. Sean Bourne, do you think that humanity will terraform Venus? And if so, do you think that plate tectonics could be initiated artificially? Yes, and yes. I, I, I don't see us really disposing of any of the main planets. I think we'd be more likely import them elsewhere. So they're, they're, they're the original ones. We're going to keep them. <laughs> Do you think that aliens would have an appearance reflecting the strength of their planet? An appearance reflecting the strength of their planet? Like the gravitational strength? or Maybe like Klingons. Yeah, could be. I, I, I don't think the gravity... I mean, gravity's not going to vary much, I think, on plants that people are natively from. So, um, yeah, but your plant's going to be huge on impacting how you come out of things. You're just going to be so impacted by that. Fate's end. Oops, ad. Sorry, got an ad. Uh, While we're waiting for that ad to clear on the phone. <laughs> here it is. Fate's end. What is the largest number naturally of naturally habitable planets that you could reasonably fit inside the habitable zone of a sun-like star? And another ad. Um, you know, somebody said, someone said, they said like, you could write a thousand in there. Uh, before I actually did the channel, um, and I just get bored and see how many real plants you could put around there, I figured out a way to put in one. It was it actually had a sun that had suns around it too, each of their own solar system clouds. That one, I think I worked out to have like a billion habitable planets around one star, maybe it was a trillion. It was smaller than a bulge planet, but uh, much bigger than Dyson's wheel. John Sturman, are Jupiter or Saturn's moons better candidates for colonization? Uh, you know, going back to the other one, it, the limitation was how many plants of Earth mash could fit into a space inside like 10,000 AU or 100,000 AU. And that one did work out to be, I want to say it was around a trillion Earth masses. So that was the number. What was the question again? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Someone finally got a question there and I got lost because I got distracted on a rapid trail. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm trying to find the additional ones, but I think that we actually butted up against our time. It's officially 5.01. Oh, oh, the, oh, Jupiter or Saturn's moon's better candidates for colonization. I got the side screen. I see it came in handy for a change. Yeah, exactly. So there's like three models over there, and I guess I can look at them. Oh, Jupiter or Saturn's moon's better candidates for colonization. Um, without the radiation issue, yeah, I would say they're better than, than some of the other options out there. But Jupiter I like better than Saturn because Saturn's only got that one big moon, Titan, which is easier to colonize than those four. But I definitely say the Galilean moons as a whole represent a better score, as it were. Um, but, uh, you know, any of those places, you're not going to be walking around in the open air with the sky and the sunshine down here. So it kind of varies. Uh, anyway, so for those who have joined us next week, thank you for joining us. We will all say goodbye, and we'll see you um, Thursday for 
that episode. I can't what the episode's going to be. Um, We'd like to give a shout out. Thank you again, Maya Skill, for keeping us up to date oh, on the yeah. questions <laughs> and pulling them. It definitely helps, and it makes it the lightning does. round a lot more fun. Thank you all yeah, for if your you're quick Discord hangout, You should probably send him a note if you ever want to help on the modding because he's kind of stuck to himself at the moment. So <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you, Em, for joining us today. And we will see you on Thursday for episode that I still can't remember the name of. It's probably on the screen. <laughs> oh, small cities. We'll see you on Thursday for Small Cities. Thank you, and we'll see you then. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for another monthly live stream. If we missed any of your questions, feel free to put them in the comments on the episode, and we'll see you on Thursday, but if you don't want to wait, you can check out any of this month's recent episodes, or see our bonus content over on Nebula at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.